Amen. If you want to turn with me in your copy of Scripture to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. So let me know if you have heard some of these phrases before, okay? Good things happen to good people, right? Do Good things just happen to good people, okay? What goes around comes around, right? Do things to, and good things will come back to you. What goes around comes around. What you put out into the universe will ultimately have to come back to you, right? These are things that you might have heard out in the world. Maybe you know someone that speaks this way. This is what we call karma, Okay? This is karma. This is a view of the world. Now, it's used formally in other religions, Hinduism and Buddhism, but it's popularly become known as this sort of view of the world. And it's this view that says, if you do good, good things will happen to you, right? Just do good. Just put the good out there, and the good of the, of the universe or whatever will come back to you, okay? This view that we call karma. If you do bad, bad's going to come back to you. So you don't want to do bad, you want to do good so that good can come back around. And I think for the most part, this is how the world sort of sees the world in which we interact in, right? The world sees the things that happen, they look into the book of providence, and they sort of read into it these different things. It could be formally, like in Hinduism and Buddhism, where it has a religious aspect, but it could even be an agnostic person. Even atheists, I think, can sometimes see the world this way. It just appears like, well, if people do good things, good things will happen to them. But the scripture knows no such view of the world. The Bible knows no such view. And in fact, many times in Scripture, it is actually the righteous who are persecuted and the, the wicked that prosper. And this is exactly what we will see in Psalm 73, that the psalmist looks around and he Instead of seeing the righteous prospering and the wicked in affliction, he sees the exact opposite. It is the wicked that are happy. It's the wicked that are rich. It's the wicked that are at ease. And it is the righteous who are stricken, smitten, and afflicted. And so the psalmist is tempted in this way to doubt God and to doubt his providence. He's tempted to forsake living for God, holy living. He's tempted to forsake God and his ways, and he's tempted to follow after the world and its ways. But I think what we're going to see today as we go through this beautiful psalm is that even though sometimes the wicked do seem to prosper, and even though those that hate God seem to be at ease, as we come to God's Word and as we're renewed by His Spirit, we are given a clear vision of what the truth really is. We're given a clear vision of what the truth really is, that it's not karma that rules the world, but it's the wise and holy providence of God. That is what rules the world that we live in, purposing all things according to His will for His own glory 
and the wicked will not ultimately prosper. They will not ultimately be at ease. It is only those that are found in Christ, the truly righteous one, who have him as their refuge and will ultimately and everlastingly be upheld. So I'm going to read our passage this evening. I'll pray for us, and then we will look further at God's word. I'll read um, the whole chapter, beginning at verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. A psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, and their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten opposition. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is their knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches." All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How are they are destroyed in a moment, swept utterly away by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and arrogant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart in my portion forever. For behold, those who are far away from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all of your works. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. We pray that you would illumine the eyes of our hearts this evening, that we might see and understand the truth of your word revealed to us in this psalm, and that we would come to rest in your providence and in your wise counsel, and ultimately come to rest in Christ alone for salvation this morning. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. So, 
This is a pretty long psalm, right? 28 verses, that's a lot to cover. It's a lot to go through. So it's, it's helpful, I think, to break it down into three different parts. And I found this to be helpful. So we'll look at three different things. You can follow along on your outline if you'd like. The first one is the temptation. The temptation. We'll see that in verses 1 through 14. We'll see the temptation. Secondly, we'll look at verses 15 through 20, where we'll see the deliverance given to the psalmist, the deliverance from this temptation. And then finally, in the remaining verses, we'll look at the psalmist's renewal. So we see in verses 2 through 14, the temptation that the psalmist faces, and I think in many ways, the temptation that you and I face in many ways. The psalmist sees the prosperity of the wicked, he sees the affliction of the righteous, and he is tempted to despise God, to forsake religion altogether, and to actually follow the path of the wicked. We see in verse 1, he begins with his confidence in God. In verse 1, he says this, "'Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart.'" Right? He's not talking about Israel externally, but the Israel internally, those, the true Israel of God, those that have been na- made new by God. But we see shortly after this, his confidence in the Lord, it moves quickly to his temptation. And we see this summarized in verses 2 through 3. We see that the psalmist nearly slips. He nearly stumbles. He nearly falls away. Why? Because he envies the unrighteous. He envies the unrighteous. He not only sees their prosperity and their ease of living, but he also sees their lack of suffering and sorrow, right? So he not only sees how easily their life is going, but he sees that they don't have sorrow like the rest of mankind. He looks at the world around him, and he sees those who are doing terrible, evil things, and instead of them suffering, instead of them having sorrow, we could say getting what they deserve, they're actually getting the opposite. They're actually prospering. They're doing really well. They are at ease. And this is the temptation that the psalmist faces. And in the following verses, we'll see how he observes and describes this, and we'll look at four different things if you wanted to make note of this. Four different things that we see. We see what these evil and wicked people do not have in verses 4 and 5, what they don't have. We see in verses 6 through 9 what they do have. We'll see in verses 10 through 11 the effect that they have on others, and then in verses 12 through 14 we'll see the effect that they have on the psalmist himself. So first we'll look at what they do not have. We see in verses 4 through 5 that they do not have trouble. They do not have suffering. They do not have sorrow like the rest of mankind. That it appears to the psalmist like the wicked actually don't suffer at all. Like they have everything they could ever want. Like they don't have to suffer. The typical sorrow and suffering that the world seems to face the evil and the wicked appear to be free from. They don't have agonizing deaths. They don't have torturing diseases. They don't have grievous pains. And this appears desirable to the psalmist. He looks at them. Their life is going pretty well. They don't have all this pain. They don't have all this suffering. And he's tempted 
to follow after them. Look at what they don't have to go through. Look at all this suffering that I'm experiencing, and they are not. So we see that they don't have trouble, they don't have sorrow, they don't have suffering. And then in verses 6 through 9, we see what they do have. What they do have. And we'll see that they are not clothed in righteousness, but they are actually clothed in violence, pride, and blasphemy. Violence, pride, and blasphemy. We read this in verse 6. It's amazing pictorial language that the psalmist uses. He says, therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Pride is their necklace. They not only wear it, but they show it off. They're proud of their pride, if that's a double negative or what, right? They're proud of their pride. They don't just wear it, they show it off. Violence is their clothing, that just as clothing covers the body, so violence covers the wicked. It covers them head to toe. And we see in the remaining verses that blasphemy is not just a thing they do occasionally, it's the air that they breathe. It's the very breath that fills their lungs. And it's very interesting that the the psalmist points out pride here, that pride in many ways is sort of the root of all sin. It's pointed out by theologians over the years. Pride was the sin of Satan. Pride was the sin of Adam and Eve. And pride is the root sin of many of our sins. Because at the heart of pride, it's saying, I can be my own God. I can make my own law. I get to determine what's right and what's wrong. And this leads to not only harming others, but, getting, but setting ourselves up against God. And that's what these people are doing, especially in their blasphemy. In verse 9, it says, they set their mouths against the heavens, right? They're so proud that they're mocking heaven. They're setting their own voice against the God of the heavens. And we see that this, these actions of the wicked, what they have and what they don't have, it doesn't just stay with them. It affects the people around them. It affects others. And we read this in our third point, the effect on others. That the prosperity of the wicked and the seeming lack of judgment and consequences actually causes others who even confess Christ to turn back to stumble and to backslide, to turn back, to stumble, and to backslide. And we read this in verse 10. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. That this my people here is talking about professing believers, right? Professing believers in the faith. And we see what they think in verse 11. And they say, how can God know? Is there really knowledge in the Most High? It's almost as if they're saying, surely God won't see what I'm doing. Surely God won't see the wickedness that I'm committing. Surely there's no knowledge in the Most High. Maybe we can get away with murder. Surely God wouldn't concern himself with me and my evil deeds. Surely He is not all-knowing. So this wickedness of the evil affects others that would even profess Christ. But we see finally and fourthly that it even has an effect on the psalmist himself. He's not immune from the temptations that are associated with the wicked. Not only does it affect others, but it affects himself. And we can say by extension, it affects us, right? 
that all it takes is a couple moments, moments of reflecting about someone in your life that, that just does whatever they want and they don't have any consequences. They can just say and do, they can act wickedly, they can steal and cheat and lie, and it doesn't appear as if they have any consequences for their actions. And I think this can be hard for us. Spurgeon called this the crux of paradox. The crux of paradox, the stumbling block of faith. And this is what the psalmist here wrestles with in verse 12. It doesn't seem to make sense. The, the wicked are rich. The wicked are rich. They're at ease. We could say they're living their best life now. Okay? They're living their best life now. They're, they're at ease. Everything is going well. They're rich. They're happy. They're content. And it causes the psalmist and it tempts him to say what he says in verse 13. And maybe you felt like this before. All in vain have I kept myself clean. All in vain have I kept myself clean and washed my hands in innocence. Have any of us ever felt like this, right? All in vain have I done what is right. All in vain have I sought to follow God and His law, right? It's all pointless. It's all meaningless. Everyone that hates you, God, is succeeding in their life. Why should I work hard when those that steal and lie and destroy seem to be doing well? Isn't it all for nothing? It's pointless to follow God, right? All in vain have I kept myself clean. And this reminded me, and I think it's actually a cross-reference in here, of Job 34, verse 9. Job 34, verse 9. That this is the same thing that Job was tempted with. This is the same thing that Job was tempted with. We read early in the book of Job that Job was a righteous man, right? He was righteous before the Lord, but we see that he ends up losing everything. Every worldly blessing in his life, he ends up losing. He loses his health. He loses his wealth. He loses his property. He loses his family. He loses his friends. He loses absolutely everything in this world. And his friends come to him, and they're terrible, okay? They're terrible friends. They're bad examples of friends. And they actually have, I would argue, a very karma view of the world. They're kind of they're kind of blaming Job for his suffering. They're saying, Job, if you just would do better, if you wouldn't sin so much, then these bad things wouldn't happen to you, right? So they're bad friends. And there's one man named Elihu that comes, and he not only rebukes Job's friends, but he also rebukes Job himself because he sought to justify himself rather than justify God. Throughout the whole process of the book of Job, you can kind of follow it. Job starts out pretty strong, pretty confident, and by the end, he's starting to question and not trust in why this frowning providence is happening to him. And Elihu um, is recounting this to Job in Job 34. And he said, he quotes what Job says, that Job said, it profits a man nothing that he should delight in God, right? And he's rebuking Job for saying this. It profits a man nothing to delight in God. This is the same thing that we're reading in Psalm 73. All in vain have I kept my heart pure. It is no 
thing. It's not, worth, it's not worth anything. It's worthless. It's insignificant to follow God. All in vain have I done this. That this is the temptation, right? I was thinking about, there's a Linkin Park song that talks about this. <laughs> if any of you know Linkin Park, um, that was my uh, high school years. But in the chorus of the song, it says this, I tried so hard and got so far, but in the end, it doesn't even matter. I had to tell to lose it. I had to fall to lose it all, but in the end, it doesn't even matter. And I think that kind of sums up how the psalmist is feeling in the moment, that I tried so hard to fall so far, and in the end, it doesn't even matter. But we see by God's grace and by grace alone that the psalmist is delivered from this temptation. And that brings us to our second point this morning, the deliverance. The deliverance. We see that it is not until the psalmist goes into the house of the Lord, to the sanctuary of the living God, that he is delivered and remembers the truth. It is not until the psalmist goes to the house of the Lord, to the sanctuary of the living God, that he is delivered and remembers the truth. That we see first in verse 15 that he acknowledges his sinful thinking. He acknowledges his transgression. He said, if I would have spoken like this, I would have betrayed the generation to come. But we see that because of his focus on the merely external world, merely on his circumstances, his judgment has become clouded. His judgment has become foggy. His focus has been on earthly things, looking at what he can see and not on the heavenly realities. And he says, it seemed difficult to understand. It seemed wearisome. It seemed burdensome. It seemed impossible to understand how it is that the wicked could prosper. But we see in verse 17 that when he enters the house of the Lord, he is given clear sight. And the fog of this world lifts, and he sees the truth of the matter. He says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. That the psalmist here sees that the true end of the wicked, the true eternal end of the wicked, is not prosperity, but judgment. Is not ease, but terror is not riches, but wrath. And that even though from an earthly perspective, it can feel as though the wicked are getting away unscathed from a heavenly and eternal perspective, their end is actually ruin. Their end is actually ruined. He says in verses 16 through 20, he says, they are destroyed in a moment that the Lord sets them in slippery places, that the true end of the wicked is ruin. It's despair. It's destruction. And we see as we observe and kind of contemplate these verses, we can see now that external conditions and circumstances are not infallible indications of God's blessing and favor, right? 
external circumstances, external conditions are not infallible indicators of God's favor or blessing. That karma is not a biblical concept. It's not biblical. It's really superstition at the end of the day. That we can say this, that yes, it is true that for the most part, acting wisely, seeking to obey God's law, even God's law revealed in nature, will result in generally good things. This is essentially what the book of Proverbs teaches in many ways. It says, consider the ant, right? Learn from the ant. Watch how the ant gets up early. It doesn't have someone telling it what to do, and yet it works hard. Don't be like the sluggard. You know, you will go hungry. <laughs> like, if you work hard, you probably won't go hungry. These are general principles laid out in the book of Proverbs, that fearing the Lord, caring for others, this is wisdom, this is good, and this is right, right? He'll later go on to say, can, you carry, can a man carry fire by his chest and not get burned? In the same way it is with someone who commits adultery, right? You can't carry fire and not get burned. So in the same way it is with those that lust after others, right? So he, he isn't, uh, um, sorry, yeah, you know, there's these general principles that we can glean, wisdom that we can glean from God's Word, but these are not infallible indicators. They're not clear indications from a human perspective about God's favor or blessing for someone. That as one Puritan said, we must be careful to not read into the book of Providence. We can't read into the book of Providence. We can't say, because I got this parking spot at Walmart, God must be happy with me, right? Just because this great thing happened to me, God must be happy with me. Just because I got sick, that must mean God is not, you know, happy with me. I must have something in my life that I need to figure out. No, that's not how God's providence works. That we cannot read perfectly into our human experience. We must be careful not to read into the book of providence. But we also learn from this passage and we also see that what delivers the psalmist, what shakes the fog from his clouded eyes, is not this white-knuckled obedience, and it's not just trying harder, but it's actually the presence and power of the triune God. When God's people come together in public worship as he goes to the house of the Lord, we see that it is actually entering the presence of God in the public worship with God's people that reminds the psalmist of what is true and what is right and what is good. The heavenly realities, the heavenly perspectives, this is what transforms his mind and reminds him of God's promises. This is what ultimately delivers him. How he's saved from the temptation, how he's able to see the truth, the real reality of the situation, and he's no longer clouded by his external circumstances. And in our final verses, we see that not only is he renewed in his repentance, but he's also renewed in his confidence and trust in the Lord and in his promises. And that leads us to our third point this morning, this evening rather, the renewal in verses 21 through 28. That after the psalmist is tempted and is finally delivered from his folly, we see that he's ultimately renewed in his faith and confidence in God. He's renewed in his faith and confidence in God. Not only inwardly, 
but outwardly. Not only in what he now hates, but in what he now desires. And we see kind of two subpoints here. The first one, we see his renewed repentance. We see his renewed repentance. That we see first, he recognizes his sin and his folly. We see that in verses 21 through 22. He says, I was brutish. I was ignorant. I was embittered. I was like an animal. Have you ever gotten so angry that you were like a beast, (laughs) that you were almost uncontrolled in your sin? You were like an animal. That even the psalmist, even though he was a saint of God, acted like the fool in Psalm 14 that says there is no God. (laughs) Right? He acted in that way. And we see that he is genuinely sorry over his sin. He hates it. He abhors it. It's not just a general dislike, but a true hating of his sin. And this is the first step in true repentance. But we see that true repentance is not just seeing our sin and hating it, but it is also a turning toward God and finding joy and satisfaction in him and delighting to do his will while recognizing our own inability and our own weakness. And we see in verses 25 through 26, I love what Spurgeon said, the psalmist now turns away from the glitter which had fascinated him to the true gold which was his real treasure. And in 25 through 26, these are amazing verses in Holy Scripture. The psalmist cries out, Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever, right? What beautiful words from the psalmist. What honest words from Holy Scripture. He cries out, Whom have I in heaven but you, O God? Who else do I have as my rock and my refuge? Who else is going to be there when the earth seemingly gives way? Or as Peter would say, to whom else should we turn, right? There's none but the living God, the Lord, the unchanging one, the rock of ages. And the psalmist has seen that his true desire is not for the wealth and riches that this world has to offer, but his desire is for God. That above all the riches and honor and wealth and prosperity that the world could give, his desire is now focused on the living God. That is his desire. Greater than gold or silver is the love he has for the Lord. We see here that this is no dead, empty religion, right? This is no just dead, well, I'm just not, I'm going to be poor. I'm just going to forsake all the worldly treasures and just kind of live this life. No, it is a true living faith, right? We see that reflected in these words. It is a living, beating desire for, the God, for God and the things of God. He says, there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. But what's amazing is his honesty in verse 26 He acknowledges his frailty, his weakness, and his utter helplessness without the Lord. He says, my flesh and my heart may fail, right? My flesh and my heart may fail. Hopefully we can pray this with the psalmist, right? Acknowledging our weakness, our flesh and our hearts will fail. We will go through seasons in the Christian life of great 
and many sins. Sometimes hardening our heart and giving in to our flesh. Seemingly walking in darkness and looking to the things of this world. Even sometimes having our assurances shaken, diminished, and intermittent. We have all felt this at one point in our life. Seasons where it seemed like sin was winning. Like we were actually following our temptations more than we were resisting them. Following ourselves, our sinful hearts, and the desires of our flesh. But just like the psalmist, he remembers that the Lord is ultimately his strength and his portion forever. So not only is his repentance renewed, but we also see his trust and his confidence in the Lord is also renewed. In verses 27 through 28, it is those that are far from the Lord that will perish. The psalmist remembers he has confidence that those that are far from the Lord will perish. But as for me, he says, it is good to be near to the Lord that at his house and with his saints is where the psalmist wants to be, that the Lord is now his refuge, not his earthly circumstances. He's not found his home here. He's found it somewhere far better. And this frees him to tell of all that the Lord has done. And so as we walk away from this passage this evening and we contemplate and think about what this means for our, our own lives, there's three things that I wanted us to think about this evening The first is this. The first is the remaining sin that we find in ourselves. The remaining sin that remains in believers. That even though God has given us a new heart with new desires, He's given us this new heart, we still wrestle with the old man. We still struggle with our own sin. As the Reformers say, what was it? I don't want to say the Latin. I don't want to sound nerdy, but sumul justus a precator, right? At the same time, justified and sinner. Even though we are justified before God by faith alone, we still struggle with our sins. We are all liable to temptations, to snares, to falling into sin, to doubting God. We see this is what the psalmist struggles with. He was a saint. He was a believer in Yahweh, and yet he is tempted to follow after the wicked. And I think that at the end of the day, this should humble us. This should cause us to remember that none of us is matured beyond the need to renew our repentance. None of us are to the point where we can say, I'm no longer a sinner. I no longer struggle. No, we see here that even the psalmist struggles with his sin and needs to have his repentance renewed. Secondly, we see the importance in attending the worship of God. The importance in attending the worship of God, the weekly gathering of God's people, the congregation of the righteous, the absolute necessity of the public worship of the triune God. That we see here, it was not until the psalmist entered the house of the Lord that his blindness was removed, that his sin was exposed, his repentance renewed, his assurance strengthened. That it is when he sees a clear vision of the truth and remembers the holiness of God and the justice of God that he is not only convicted of his sin, but assured of the salvation that he has in the Lord. His confidence 
in the promises of God is grown. He's renewed to walk in the way of holiness despite his external circumstances. And he remembers the ultimate truth that God will surely judge the wicked. All those that are not in Christ will ultimately be put to shame. But God will surely vindicate the righteous. God will surely vindicate the righteous. And the only righteous one is Christ the Lord. And so it is only those that are found in Him by faith alone that are saved and are made righteous by His works, not by theirs. That this is what we are reminded of each and every Lord's Day. This is what we come together to remember. We come together to encourage one another, to stir one another up in the faith, to fellowship with one another, to remember the holiness of God, the sinfulness of our sin, the grace of the gospel, the truth of God's word, and the promises that he gives us that he will renew us by his spirit. This doesn't mean that God doesn't use personal means like study of God's Word and fellowship throughout the week to convict us and remind us, but the primary and promised way that God has ordained to encourage, strengthen, and grow His people is through the regular meeting of God's people in God's house. Or as the Baptist Catechism say, it's the outward and ordinary means of applying Christ's redemption, right? That's what we see in God's Word. That's what we see in Psalm 73. But finally, notice as we step away from this passage, the heavenly-mindedness of God's people. The heavenly-mindedness of God's people. That if we look to the world and our circumstances in this world, we'll often be disappointed. Things aren't going our way. We see those that are wicked and they're doing well and our life seems to be falling apart. We seem to be sick. We seem to be hurting. We seem to be in pain. We seem to be in sorrow and in suffering. And we can be tempted to look to this world and the things of this world for our comfort and our lasting hope. But if, like the psalmist, we turn our eyes toward heaven, toward the wise and holy providence of God, and toward the adoption that we have in Christ alone, our eyes are lifted from this earth and they are listed, lifted to heaven where we will ultimately be comforted. And we can remember Romans 8.28 that says God works all things for good for those that love him and are called according to his purposes, the good providences and the frowning providences. And um, it's funny that Luke's here. I saw on his Facebook today, he posted this quote from Spurgeon and I wanted to close with this quote that I found to be very encouraging. Although I be oppressed with anguish and terror on every side and seem to be forsaken and utterly cast away from your presence, yet I remember I am your child and you are my father for Christ's sake. I am beloved because of the beloved one, right? I am beloved because of the beloved one. Even though our world seems to be falling apart, our own lives can sometimes feel in turmoil that we can trust in God and in His providence that He will ultimately do what is right, what is just, and what is good, and we can have confidence in that. Let's pray this evening. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your grace. We thank You for Your mercy in Christ. We thank You for Your wise and holy providence. 
which is often mysterious to us, Lord. We sometimes seek to read into it to see if we can find these certain things out, Lord, but at the end of the day, it is mysterious. Your wisdom and your good providence is known only to you. And so we come now in faith. We come trusting that you, the God of all justice, will do what is right. And even though with our worldly eyes, it can seem like everything is backwards, we can trust and have confidence this evening and every day that you will do what is right, that for those of us that are in Christ, we will be saved. He was the only one that was truly righteous, right? Just as Psalm 14 says, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's only one, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is man and God, the two-natured Redeemer of God's people. And so this evening, may our faith and hope be found in Him alone. May we rest in Him, and may we have confidence that you will fulfill your promise that one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.